This is a conversation with Anders Sandberg from the Future of Humanity Institute. Anders also recently joined Fawcett as a senior fellow, and in this conversation he discusses the game theory of cooperating with extraterrestrial intelligences and future civilizations. We go all the way out there, but these days still pretty practical, I would say. I would welcome you to also look at the slides in case you want to get down into the details. Please enjoy this podcast and subscribe to our mailing list if you want more of this. Enjoy. So my general interest is, of course, thinking about uh, the very long-term future, the, the grandest possible future. This comes out of my thinking about where are the limits when uh, how far we can really go. And uh, it's interesting to see that some of these limits are set by laws of physics. Some limits might be complexity theory limits, but it's not feasible to compute certain things or uh, reach certain forms of equilibrium. There is a lot of limits that are more subtle because there might be economic uh, effects, etc. And there might also be important game theoretical limits. The problem with this kind of limits is that quite often clever institutional uh, design or other things can circumvent a lot of these uh, things. But Let's start with one limit that is kind of very straightforward. Einstein has locked us in in a light cone. Or maybe it wasn't exactly Einstein, but he pointed out that we're locked into a future light cone. And special relativity has a very interesting role in structuring our future. Because as insofar it turns out to be a correct description of the universe, it actually creates a sense of what the causal structure of the future can be. It also has a lot of other side effects. I have opinions about the problems of making relativistic rockets. But perhaps more importantly, we have a cosmological aspect that space-time, by a virtue of expanding at an accelerating rate, makes uh, us locked in into a light cone that is also not going to spread out infinitely far in co-moving coordinates. That is, the number of galaxies that can eventually reach as time goes to infinity is finite. And this is actually a pretty big deal, because that means that our future looks like it's going to contain a finite amount of stuff. Now, depending on your value theory, you might want to use the stuff for very, very different things. Indeed, it might turn out that some civilizations and some values are totally fine with a mere galactic supercluster or something even smaller. Um, but in many cases, more stuff is more useful. You might uh, use it to power yourself for a very long time. You might use it to turn it into computers, uh, to uh, do a lot of thinking, um, and so on. But you also have this limit of the causal connectedness. So if you just spread out very far and wide, the remote galaxy clusters will, within a mere few hundred billion years, drift apart. So unless you do anything about it, they will lose causal connection to each other, which again might be a good thing. If you really want to run away from uh, the oppressive government at home in the Virgo supercluster and can move into another gravitational bound cluster that disappears over the horizon, bingo. There is no way they can actually ever reach you. On the other hand, if you think that the value in life is coming from being part of one big civilization, one discourse, or even one galactic super overmind, you might want to keep things connected together. And then you're bound by the largest kind of gravitational bound cluster you will get from the current dynamics of the universe or that you can bring together by sending out your probes and bringing stuff in. 
Now, this finiteness might matter more to philosophers when they practice, but it also has a lot of interesting effects. But generally, in earlier papers, uh, Stuart Armstrong and me described uh, a way of what was needed to literally take over the reachable part of the universe. Basically, what you need to do is uh, you take um, the resources of a large asteroid or small planet, you build a partial dinosaur shell, you and send out probes to all the reachable galaxies. You repeat the process inside those galaxies. And then you have robots in every solar system that can't possibly be reached. It takes kind of 40 years about to construct the Dyson sphere. If you think about it using a relatively modest self-replication, a bunch of billions of years to get the most remote galaxies. But all in all, the amount of information uh, that needed the to send, that is what is more limiting. Uh, it's not so much that you send enormous amount of matter. This plan for taking over the universe is more like a crystallization process of sending out certain patterns that can self-replicate rather than sending enormous amount of matter around. Of course, once you've done this, my, maybe now you want to bring your galaxy clusters together to uh, get a nice hypercluster. But the expanding into the universe is mostly set by the limits of how fast you can move and things like interstellar and intergalactic dust. And indeed, in terms of uh, how much of the universe that can be reached, it's mostly set by how rapidly you move. And you can reach between a few hundred million to a few billion galaxies, depending if you can push it really close to light speed. This is great. Now, there is a lot of the resources that can be used for whatever the thing there is. Now, the game theory here might also, already here we might have one interesting thing to observe, but if I'm thinking of doing this, maybe I want to spend some time developing a faster way, way of propelling my space probes. But you might say, okay, I'm totally going to settle these galaxies before Anders gets them. So we might have this interesting race of getting there first, if we assume that you can hold the property rights, versus going there faster. And it turns out that um, under fairly broad assumptions here, going faster tends to win out. It's not just in that you can go further, but even the delay it takes in for me to develop a faster uh, spacecraft is uh, completely outweighed by the fact that during transit, my spacecraft are going to be slightly faster than yours, which also leads to this slightly problematic situation. If we imagine two competing groups on Earth right now, with slightly different resources. If one uh, group decides, I'm, I'm going to do this and send off spacecraft and get there before the other group, they are not going to get anything of the universe, which might not be exactly a peritotopian outcome. So this is, first of all, where we might want to set up a cooperative dynamics because otherwise the second group uh, might have a very strong incentive to mess things up for the first group. So you want to actually make sure that you can <clears throat> get to this uh, equilibrium position where they get enough of the future that they want, don't want to sabotage it for that. There are also these interesting race dynamics that we might imagine with alien civilizations, which I'm getting to. And of course, since Robin is in the call, uh, you might guess that this is kind of related to uh, his ideas about grabby aliens. So far, I'm mostly talking about a grabby humanity who that for some reasons want to affect a large chunk of the universe. Now, <clears throat> it's interesting to note that um, space becomes essentially homogeneous as far as we know, beyond the 300 megaparsec scale. There is 
a bit of ongoing debate about whether there are larger structures or whether at this point we have a literal end of greatness. And another interesting assumption is that real advanced civilization probably can convert most resources to most other resources. It's not like you, <clears throat> you're going to find that a particular galaxy cluster is really low in thulium or in the scandium, and that's going to be a problem for its local industry. Uh, mostly because stellar dynamics is the same everywhere. And even though spiral galaxies and the elliptical galaxies are chemically slightly different, I think on this scale, you're just going to get a sample of spiral and elliptical galaxies. They're going to have roughly the same chemical composition. <clears throat> also, it might very well be that you can need to convert various forms of matter and energy, paying a bit of a price in terms of entropy for doing this. So I think it's a fairly likely case that once you reach a very high level of technology, and after all, we might imagine starting this settlement after spending a million years perfecting our technology locally and then going really fast. So we should expect that if there is an upper limit to technology, that probably would imply that we have an ultimate expansion speed, basically what's rational to do at that technological level. And in this case, you would also have a universal suite of technological abilities. This is, of course, not entirely undebated. Peter Eckersley and to having this ongoing bet about whether we are eventually going to level out technologically or whether actually there are still meaningful technological developments going on indefinitely. There is an interesting other case to be made for the kind of David Deutsch style that technology can continue forever and becomes ever more complicated. But the thing is... Um, I personally think that there are likely some limits on the kind of practical technologies for the spacecraft, etc. So I'm going to assume that. It's interesting to maybe follow up what happens in more open-ended universes. Now, if we think about this kind of expansion and move into co-moving uh, coordinates, uh, uh, everything becomes much nicer from a geometrical standpoint. The universe is expanding, which means that our future light cone is not exactly a cone. And it's rather hard to visualize, of course, in 4D. But if we count space in terms of galaxies that are essentially at rest relative to the universe and set up a time coordinate that is kind of scaled with that, so in our diagrams, time uh, and, uh, and conspires to make sure that light cones are 45 degree things, then you get a so-called conformal time. It has a funny property, given our current uh, understanding of expansion, that there is an ultimate time in conformal time, which would correspond to actual clock time infinitely far in the future. But in practice, the story of expansion of civilization would be a cone starting at some point, expanding outwards until the final time, and then we get to see how much we could affect. Now, if we imagine civilization starting in random uh, positions and random times, so basically conformal time is defined so that if you use co-moving spatial coordinates, Light cones will be 45 degree uh, lines in this diagram. Now, the thing here is, of course, that since the expansion is growing exponentially, as far as we understand current cosmology, that actually means that when you actually get a finite limit for conformal time, there is a kind of ultimate conformal time, which is, I think, 50 billion years. Big scare quotes about years here uh, when talking about conformal time. I'm mostly using it to make my diagrams work out well, but it's super convenient because we just get to talk about cones going up to a certain height. 
And that means that the history of a civilization expanding is just described as a cone starting at some point in space and time and continuing. And the final radius tells us how much they have been able to affect. Now, if we imagine two civilizations starting, expanding outwards and not being able to get into each other's uh, region, eventually uh, they will have two cones intersecting and between them is going to be this curve which is going to turn out to be a a hyperboloid sheet, uh, mathematically speaking. So that means that we can actually describe the partition of the universe between different civilizations expanding from different points as a so-called additively weighted (coughs) Voronoi partition. (coughs) So so basically, you start with random seeds, you expand outwards, and uh, some of them might start late, so they get small pieces, others start early and get large pieces. And Depending on how many they are, they might fill space completely, like in the rightmost diagram I have here. It might also be that in a very in a sparsely settled universe, you never meet anybody. So we might imagine that the density is so low that uh, you just expand outwards and you get a big ball of space-time, and that's it. You never meet anybody else. But, of course, it might be that you actually do encounter a few civilizations in a relatively lightly settled universe. Eventually, there are going to be some borders. You get these uh, slightly curved borders. These distances would be measured in gigaparsecs. So we would be talking about very long distances and the borders literally stretching over billions of light years. If we imagine a universe that is even more densely settled, there are going to be, of course, more neighbors. And if there's enough of them, then you end up that in all directions, you are going to meet somebody else. One of the funny things is that the statistical mechanics of Voronoi partitions was worked out by material scientists thinking about nucleations in crystal melts. So a lot of the math is already worked out. There's nice closed forms expressions of the expected number of neighbors. And in the case of a dense universe, it turns out that we should expect 15.4 neighbors uh, in our inhabited zone. And that's actually some rational number times pi. So it actually has a really funny analytic form. But in practice, of course, this depends a little bit on the distribution in time when the civilizations arrive. And at this point, of course, I just do a hand wave in the direction of Robin's uh, grabby aliens paper for getting into the question about how that distribution might look and what fits with our observation. But it turns out that when I simulate it, it doesn't change the topology that much. So um, it's more like a question, is the density high enough that we are going to be closed in from all directions? Or is it low enough that we're going to be some direction where we never meet any aliens? Incidentally, uh, if the universe didn't have a constant cosmological constant, but uh, would actually be expanding more slowly in the long run future, it might be that then we could expand, it appears, infinitely far. But if you have a finite <clears throat> density of civilizations, eventually you're going to meet some neighbors in that direction. So you would actually have an ultimate limit on how much of the universe we could get that would be actually be set by the density of intelligent life. There are some funky things you can do here, very akin to Hilbert's hotel, to try to coordinate with your alien neighbors to get a larger volume of space-time. But it turns out to be very problematic to actually get this to work here. But let's discuss that maybe later. So one interesting assumption going on here is, of course, 
can we actually assume that everybody's just going to meet at the border and be friendly to each other? Or aren't we going to get space warfare? So I've been trying to work this out in my enormous book project. I'm still not done on it. But it looks like there are various reasons to believe that on the very large scales, and the universe is pretty defense dominant. One reason is that the borders here are very nearly flat. And if we assume that technology tends to level off, at this point, you're going to be meeting somebody else that have roughly the same technology as you and roughly the same amount of resources within a certain radius. So that means that whatever conflict you have near the border, it's going to be even, which might be a bit deterring. There is an interesting question whether you can also get offense-defense scaling. There is a fascinating paper by Garfinkel and Dafoe uh, about how, as you have more resources to uh, a conflict, it might be that on certain assumptions, defense wins out. I'm not entirely convinced this applies here. It's a complicated question that I'm still working on. Uh, but in that case, it would strengthen things. But a lot of it just depends on the local laws of physics. Basically, if you attack something, how easy is it to do? What is the trade-off between information and energy? And in particular, are things of ma- that matter militarily spread out in a continuous mode or discrete mode? The, that, that seems to lead to a whole host of things so that change this balance. It looks like you can definitely do scorched earth strategies, just blowing up resources to deny them to the other side, which means that if somebody wants your resources, you can deter them that way. It turn, does turn out that on these very vast cosmological scales, mutual assured destruction does not work. Even if I have my little doomsday device that triggers vacuum decay, that vacuum decay will move out at the speed of light and wipe out everything inside it. But the universe is expanding exponentially. That is just going to be a part of this diagram that gets wiped out. might be very bad for the people and aliens inside that, but I can't, you, I can't scare you and by saying this is going to wipe out your entire empire because the other part of your empire might be spreading so fast and be so far away that my vacuum decay will never reach it. So it might still depend a little bit on your value for the function, whether you think this is scary enough to deter something. But in general, on the variable scales, the causal structure of space-time make many military strategies problematic, including, of course, that you can't even tell others that you've encountered an enemy. Anyway, uh, Anders, what, what is OD? Uh, so that's offense-defense scaling. So if you just search for OD scaling, you will find the paper, uh, which I think I'm not convinced by it completely, but I think it's possibly one of the most interesting papers uh, about this topic in the last decade. I, I think it's worth analyzing a lot more because if they're right, that's brilliant news. I fear they're not right about some cases that we care deeply about. And my model right now is that depending on the size scale of your settled space, you might actually have an the non-monotonous balance between offense and defense. I think defense wins on the vastest scales. I think it might win on some intermediate scale, but it might be some scales in between that are actually pretty vulnerable. So it might also be that we really want to get out of the vulnerable regions. For example, being stuck in a single planetary system might be very risky. But once you spread across a bunch of stars, risks go down quite a lot. And then once you start getting galactic resources, things go up a bit again before going down. Anyway, 
getting over to the more cooperative stuff, it's pretty clear given the previous things, but yeah, trading resources are, wouldn't make much sense. It's not like uh, we want to sell the Scandium we got in our galaxy for the Thulium from another galaxy, because just transporting it would actually be a large fraction of the mass energy. It seems like it might be services and maybe information that matter. And that means that the value scales with either the volume, you kind of do some service like running happy minds uh, or figure out problems and the communication capacity, which tend to scale uh, normally uh, linearly with the amount of transmission power. But this also depends a little bit on the distances you do it. One, we could imagine another situation where we encounter the Zorgons and uh, we humans have converged on the view that, yeah, maximizing happy minds is the best thing ever. So we are uh, running a lot of computers. We turn a solar system into Dyson spheres full of very, very happy minds. And we find that the Zorgons have converged on the view that the calculated digits of pi, that's the best thing ever. That should be done. So in some sense, we would say the Zorgon space is lacking value. There is no happiness there, just lots of digits. And they would say, oh, you humans, we're really badly off. You have so few digits of pi. But we could imagine that maybe Zorgon pi calculating computers could also run happy minds and uh, our computers could calculate digits of pi. Uh, let's hand wave a little bit about which digits and which minds, etc. But they want more digits. They want as many digits. Uh, but it's a Interesting situation that we can sometimes see these bargaining solutions, but just in the volume that causally is both human and organ space, we now have both happiness and more digits of pi. And this is really effective when you have non-local. So we might say happy minds are valuable, even if we cannot causally link to them. Maybe we're halfway across the universe, but we're still happy and happiness counts. And the Zorgons, for some weird reason, also think the same thing about digits of pi. This might, of course, be more problematic in other situations. This depends quite a lot on the kind of um, value system you have. So you could imagine other neighbors that are just bad uh, neighbors. So you could have radical negative utilitarians saying, we need to minimize uh, certain forms of suffering, and it's better to have less resources than allowing those suffering to happen. So in our happy mind case, well, Sometimes you know, these happy minds are less happy than optimal. And the negative utilitarians say, yeah, that's actually suffering. So we are going to spend our resources to reduce your resources because then there's going to be less pain and suffering by our weird definition. So they would be very annoying neighbors. They would actually be motivated to try to do things that would force us to do scores earth track tactics, which they would even approve of because they then that way get more optimal situation. You can imagine some other really annoying neighbors. So it's not obvious that all neighbors and all values just to produce nice stuff. There is also this interesting concerns that sometimes come up about could you do various forms of blackmail? Uh, like Elga's uh, very funny paper, uh, Torting Dr. Evil with Self-Locating Beliefs, uh, where Dr. Evil is threatened by philosophers running a thousand simulations of him and his moon base. But if he doesn't immediately uh, turn off his giant space laser that he's threatening Earth with, uh, uh, then they're going to torture the simulate the, the Dr. Evil. And since the Dr. Evil receiving the message doesn't know whether he is actual Dr. Evil on the moon or one of the simulated Dr. Evils, it should be rational for him to turn off the space laser. And you can imagine, of course, playing the same trick by simulated or uh, an uh, alien civilization. 
I think this one in practice doesn't work as well as it does in philosophical thought experiments, because there you can happily assume any amount of computational uh, power. And I think actually doing realistic simulations of alien civilization, just especially the higher decision-making processes, might actually be rather costly. But it shows that there might actually be a reason that you want to pre-commit to certain things. You might actually want to ensure that you cannot just uh, get threatened by some uh, opponent. The Sorgons might say, yeah, if you're not doing what we want, we're going to run a zillion copies of human minds in a horrible bad state. That's uh, actually a real threat, unlike uh, the kind of... um, and self-locating belief for it, because there would be actual minds in agony. So we might say, actually, we need to save, have cryptographic safeguards so nobody makes pirated copies of human minds to blackmail us with. There might be actually quite a lot of reasons to do interest and pre-commitment, which seems to link rather nicely with our, the discussions in this chapter. And another interesting thing is that uh, if the deal we made with the Sorgons about digits of pi versus happiness is going ahead nicely. It spread out in a future light cone from the points where we did that, which means that we can actually have a sphere of influence that's much bigger than what humans eventually set. We might get a small little polyhedral Voronoi partition, but the happiness sphere is going to be much larger if all the neighboring aliens and their neighbors are going to say, yep, we're totally fine with this. So this might actually be mean that a lot of value, especially if you have values that don't care about causal connectedness, uh, can happen. Uh, you might also get these complications that on the other side of human space, we find some other aliens that calculate digits of E, and they take exactly the same resource uh, digits of pi. So you can't run their or the Sorgon's uh, computation. We need to choose. So you get some kind of domain rule. We humans don't care too much about it, but Sorgos are going to be a bit sad that we didn't get more digits. Now, this is very different if the deal is linked to the value being communications, like an ongoing discourse or uh, making a soap opera that you can watch and uh, respond to. Uh, That requires much more local interaction, and then you need the ongoing coordination. it's also interesting that at this point, we will say that the zombies, that maybe you want the same action being taken at a lot of different locations. And this is, again, where you want pre-commitment. Um, there might be some very funky things, and I'm interested in hearing your views about, for example, using shared uh, quantum entanglement to essentially flip a coin in a correlated way in different places. We might imagine sending out all the human ships settling the, the visible universe with a bit of shared qubits, so they can actually, when they meet aliens, uh, make certain randomized decisions in the bargaining structure that is still going to be correlated across human space. There are some interesting issues here about the secret sharing and the, the, what, what happens if a Sorgon steal a few of the qubits, etc. So we might want to work out that game theory. And that kind of leads to my final point. That it looks like there is a fair bit of things we l- would like to coordinate about, so we want to avoid uh, creating spreading risks like vacuum decay or badly aligned uh, AGI. We might want to, to figure out philosophy well enough so we might settle the universe but don't create too much suffering. If there are some people thinking that uh, spreading life everywhere is a bad thing because there's suffering in many forms of natural life. And if suffering counts morally, and especially if it counts more than pleasure, then it might be that having 
galaxy of the galaxy full of willed life is actually worse than having just one planet with just one biosphere where there is a lot of insects uh, suffering. We obviously want to set up things to avoid conflict. And if you want to do really big cosmological engineer, you really want to know what you want to do. So you you don't get an unbalanced hypercluster when you get a lot of galaxies getting moved together. Suddenly you discover that, oh no, the left side has way more mass than the right side. We can't actually prevent this from imploding. You really want to plan that out carefully. But I think the most interesting thing is we might want to do this with encryption keys, random number seeds, and when it's actually setting up ways of making a moral trade stick. This is also important if you have very long-range plans. Some of us want might want to use the degenerate era where it's very cold, do a lot of more computation, but sleep out uh, the current stelliferous era because, well, it's just too hot to do any work at 3 Kelvin. Uh, well, others want to make use of that for their adventures. And then we want to make sure that uh, we, and then when we wake up, find that we actually have our resources and that nobody has taken them and, and dumped them into a black hole. You might want to figure out ways of making this stick. The same thing goes for moral traits. There might be a lot of stay at home saying, look, we just want to have a nice utopian world here on Earth. You go out and mess with your galaxies, but don't mess up Earth or our night sky. So we might want to make a moral trade, but expansionists promise not to mess up things for the stay at homes in a way that both can say that this is unlikely to be legal. And of course, in the discussion on long-termism and effective answers, there have been this conversation about what Will McCaskill called the long reflection. But once we reach existential risk maturity, once we kind of brought down the risk of going extinct prematurely, we might want to spend a fairly long time, which what long means here might be debated, to actually figure out exactly what we want and how we want to set things up, the coordination, and then go off and uh, really implement whatever the best thing is. We had a very fun seminar yesterday over here where we were critiquing this concept. It's by no means a simple concept, and uh, a lot of the stuff in this project is very relevant for thinking about the tools to make the tools to make the law reflection possible or reasonable. So Robin's critiques, for example, were brought up in that conversation, but this is getting a bit off topic. Anyway, I think my standard take on this is, okay, it looks like we have an enormously bright and big future. Uh, so we really need to worry about not going extinct now. But it also looks like there are good reasons to think we need to set up some very interesting coordination mechanisms that work when you're causally fairly separated and uh, about quite a lot of uh, things that needs to be negotiated with aliens that might have, might have very weird uh, utility functions. Well, that's what is it. I'm very happy to have questions and continue the conversation. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. Uh, I know we already have Chris Hibbert and Robert Hansen with questions. I just want to ask one, which was on the, uh, I guess, moral trade um, aspect, right? Let's imagine we actually figure out a way to trade much of our uh, norms and, and, and that we uh, currently use to cooperate, we are almost, you know, at, or at least co are correlated uh, roughly with stable strategies that evolve from the previous, um, you know, pe uh, previous uh, cooperative interactions that humans had, right? So could you imagine even that on the long run, as we trade with whatever we will trade with those alien intelligences, new kind of like norms of cooperative play could emerge from that? So almost like a meta game theory that evolves from the you know, from our cooperative interactions that we have with them, either on information, you know, or on moral trade uh, or on services? Like, could there be another stable strategy that emerges? 
I think there's room for quite a bit of that. The problem is, of course, if you're on this very, very vast scale, those norms are going to propagate at light speed. So if there's a particular point where somebody comes up with a new cool metanorm, it's going to propagate outward. And then maybe something later shows up. So you get it's kind of onion structure. And this is also true for if you imagine a centralized uh, world, Earth is sending out commands, you get, an, again, an onion structure, depending on that Emperor Caligula the second and Emperor Caligula the third, they're giving different orders. So you get different spheres that have received one or two of these orders. Um, so the metagaming gets interesting. Also, when you take into account that you know roughly how long time you have until uh, the end of time. Uh, the, presumably, if you're a civilization of this scale, you know enough cosmology to make guesses at what's causally connected, etc. But you can also probably at this stage make good guesses about the density of civilizations. You might actually know how many other alien civilizations humans will ever have made a deal with, even though you're not causally going to know it. You're actually going to have a fair bit of acausal knowledge about these things. So I can see something like people playing around with the versions of, the, for example, the iterated prisoner's dilemma here. And you also get a spatial version of it. I haven't seen a space-based um, form of game theory. I would actually love it, uh, to hear if anybody has seen anything like that. But if you're located in a space and have a finite communication speed, what are the optimal strategies in some of these uh, games? Okay, lovely. Uh, I'll just I have one more question, then I'll leave it to Chris, Robin, and, uh, and David, which is, you know, given that this group is also on the other end, quite practical. You know, you already mentioned cryptography as being a potential useful tool in our toolbox. Do you have any, yeah, could you speak a little bit more on that? Like, how could it enable us to pre-commit, uh, if at all, how could it maybe help us avoid the risk from spreading as well? Do you have any specific ideas there on what could be useful? Um, so I've been uh, thinking mostly on a slightly smaller scale which is kind of easy given the cosmological size here. I, I've been thinking about securing actually self-replicated robot swarms for building Dyson spheres, because of course I want to have my kind of Swiss army knife of mega scale engineering. And then I realized, hmm, self-replicated robot swarm building infrastructure. That sounds like just the thing somebody might want to hijack. Maybe for evil purposes, but also because they want it and don't want to have to do the hard work of uh, starting it. There is some very interesting things you can do here when you start thinking about, especially self-replicating machines are lovely because the first machine making the second machine is in contact with the second machine and in some sense has a very privileged ability to put in certain randomized bits into the second machine. So it's linked either in using classical crypt cryptography or even if we get it, the quantum cryptography, if you can store the qubits in the right way or distributing uh, kind of public-private uh, key pairs. So you can make fairly strong links machine, uh, from parent machines to descendant machines. The problem is usually for the infrastructure, you actually want all the machines to talk to each other. And if you need to track things up to the, the, the tree, to the kind of the, in the, the ancient grandfather machine that started the whole thing, it becomes very inefficient. I've been reading up on the kind of a Byzantine general's problems, and it looks like, yep, there is a lot of cool stuff there that can be applied for this kind of swarm system. One of the important things, and this is getting back to your question, is that uh, communications complexity uh, seems to be a really rich field that is moving around fast. And especially if you have a few qubit pairs, you can actually reduce your communication complexity a lot. And this probably matters for the more kind of 
original scenario where you have human settlements going out and meeting the aliens, you might need to communicate with your neighbors, but you don't want to spend too much bits because you're probably going to need a lot of energy and a lot of precious time to wait for it. So by having the right kind of correlations and set up before, you share an algorithm, you might share a few qubit pairs, you can minimize that and help more quickly reach conclusions. I think this also applies to the securing thing. But again, I'm now right at the edge of my knowledge and that many of you are way better than me at this. Okay, great. Enough for people in this group to figure out. We have Chris, Robin, and then David. So I wanted to ask about the the hard boundaries between these Voronoi volumes. Uh, that's, that seems to make sense if you assume that it's all offense and defense and spheres of influence. But if you're expecting trade and cooperation, then it seems like there's going to be a lot more diffusion. Plus, there's probably a lot of of interpenetration at the boundaries. It's hard to imagine that that you know there's there's a solid sphere of influence. So can you say something about how your your picture of the 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 volume of interactions would change if you expect more more cooperation? Yeah, so that's a good point. So the the horde boundary is kind of a minimal assumption that the, the first entity to get to a place gets to claim it and it's absolutely impossible for anybody to get there. But you could imagine, of course, that now this organs open and they're spared for immigration. And then the humans could keep on spreading inwards. It's going to depend, of course, whether the habitats uh, are going, that humans might want and the organs want are similar or different. Yep. Now, in traditional science fiction, you could make this kind of argument. Yeah, humans want planets with water and, and air, but maybe the organs really like liquid nitrogen in which case we would be kind of just spreading inward without any fears. In practice, of course, the implicit assumption I've been making that at sufficiently advanced technologies, all resources are almost alike, would mean that sorghums and humans probably all turn in the solar system into Dyson spheres or Compatronium, what have you. It may, it may be that the first visitors, the first explorers, don't have as much ability to exploit resources. And so they're looking for places that are ripe for the picking. And so, you know, each civilization chooses one planet out of each star system and and makes their best use of that. And there's plenty of room for others to join them there. But, but notice that my standard assumption is kind of that after 40 years, you built a Dyson sphere of that solar system anyway. It's very small interval. But I think there's still some interest in picking Going on. Indeed, one part of my book I haven't finished yet is actually setting up the right algorithm for approaching a galaxy and selecting where do I want to set up my uh, little base camp. Uh, there is something interesting about the problem that when you're doing a really long travel, you might actually be have to approach a star that wasn't born by the time you're arriving at the galaxy. So you actually need to unfold the telescope which is a very sensitive piece if you're moving rather fast uh, through space, try to relatively quickly find the, the, a good target and then do steering as you're slowing down. So there might be a lot of interesting stuff. I think that, uh, that if you go from the hard border case, this kind of intermediate case is probably low probability uh, and rather messy, but it uh, could be, potentially be interesting. And then you have a boring but what I think is rather realistic cases, if you have the open borders, it's mostly about the information, in which case, actually, the border is going to be more like a spherical wavefront where human information and human, uh, the, the colonies are moving. So we're just moving past each other. 
Okay, lovely. Thanks, Robin. So the uh, basic setup of like the middle part of the talk was uh, assuming our civilization and theirs and how do we cooperate with them? That seems to assume that internal to our civilization, it's easier to cooperate than between civilizations. But it's not obvious to me that that's really a much easier problem. Is there a way to understand why we would have such a strong coordination within and and that would be harder to do without? I mean, you know, if you're if you're way that advanced, then we're basically as advanced as them and different parts of the, as us could be as different from uh, each other as we are from them at the border. So maybe different people at the border go look for the people on the other side who are most like them. <laughs> you have to cooperate with them and then don't cooperate with the other people nearby who aren't as similar or something. Yeah. A lot of it depends also on the expansion pattern. So um, I, I got very inspired, of course, by your old paper about burning the cosmic commons and did a lot of simulations where I had the kind of agents that uh, settler solar system sent out probes and other were sending out probes that I was watching up away from the vault. And if you then color things by kind of random numbers uh, and based on what their ancestor civilization were, you basically get this kind of nice uh, pattern that you see in both the spread of bacterial colonies uh, and it's on the, the crystal fronts where you kind of see these little wedges, of course, if it's expanding, of the descendants of a particular point which would produce a kind of situation where human space might be like pyramids going outward of various cultures. Now, of course, on a sufficiently large scale, that might mean that one of the cultures is going to be meeting the Sorgons. Now, that model assumes relatively short-range settlement. I tend to assume that actually it looks like intergalactic space is relatively quick and free. It's free of dust, and if you can move with relativistic speed, you're going to be trying to send um, uh, to all the galaxies. And that tends to lead to homogeneity because you have fewer steps from your original civilization, whatever that one uh, was. Now, of course, you might still argue that maybe that civilization was very diverse. So everybody gets a chance to send out some probes, but the probes are having totally different goals. So you're going to get the normal probes and the transhumanist probes uh, and the, the Swaziland naturalist probes and whatever that's a possibility, but I do think that there is some science in that early argument I gave about coordination, that if you have a group that is weaker and have smaller resources, it could be dominated in the settlement process by a group that has slightly more resources. So there is a rather strong incentive to get everybody on board with some settlement project, because otherwise you're going to have a fair bit of internal conflict. It's, of course, entirely possible to have a dramatic situation where everybody's fighting against everybody and some groups are launching at the same time. But it looks like it's more likely, that, to me at least, that you want to stay that off. You find some compromise solution, which might still mean, of course, that you get minorities spread out, but they are going to be within some form of bigger cooperatives framework. So it sounds like your answer is something like you'll see a competition for cooperation that is in the competition to expand, the ones who cooperate the best will win the competition. And therefore, that's why we should expect a strong internal yeah. cooperation. Of this also, uh, there is, dependent on your, what your value theory is, you might not even want to expand particularly far. Uh, if you're, you're like happy clips or happy minds, uh, then you want to, of course, spread that as far as possible. But if you think that the future is all causally connected, the discourse inside this, this vaster civilization, 
you only want to spread out to a certain distance uh, because that's going to remain causally connected. And of course, there's a bunch of stay-at-homes who just want to have tea in the nice little utopian village. They don't want to go anywhere at all. So you might even have this onion structure, but the outer layer, which is the most likely one to actually run into the aliens, are going to be the ones that have less interest in causal connectedness. All right, uh, David. So I think there are a couple of places where there's a strong assumption that, first of all, we're assuming aggregative utilitarianism, where like more is going to be better indefinitely, as opposed to assuming that finite minds, you know, current finite human minds have some place where they can hit maximum value with very finite amounts of resources, at which point there's no reason for them to go anywhere. So I, I think that's that's one part of this. And then the second part is it seems plausible that most of the ways that we have to expand very quickly are destructive of value. So sending sending our, our replicating nanobots all over the place to continue to expand outwards might require them to disassemble large fractions of the nearby solar systems, which means that people on Earth don't have access to those solar systems because they've been pulled apart. So it seems like there's some risk that we, um, in trying to grab lots of very, very long-term value, actually end up destroying most of the value available. Yeah. I'm not as worried about that. So I got very worried uh, originally when I read the Robbins uh, Burning the Cosmic Commons paper because that seemed to be that everything just got turned into resources for further expansion. So you end up with a swarm of interstellar locusts. Um, And uh, of course, it's somewhat similar when when you read Jay Olson's papers about aggressively expanding civilization. But when I did my calculations about how much faster can you go using the mass energy in a sphere of a certain radius, I found that actually the scaling was pretty modest. Um, in theory, you could imagine somebody trying to get the, the lowest uh, gram of matter to go slightly, slightly faster. Uh, but given that risks uh, to the ships go up, uh, even in the galactic space because of very sparse dust, and, uh, it seems like you actually get a leveling off. And that's a bit similar like your first point, but yeah, there might be a finite upper maximum for what human minds can get. Or, but you just have preferences that are satisfiable, and once you've done that, you're, you're not going to want to expand. But I think that is also what you likely get, an early moral trait. The people who just want to uh, have that uh, finite thing are going to be uh, happy to leave the rest to the others if they can be guaranteed to get their finite things with high certainty. So I think there is still work to be done here because this slightly sensitively depends on your model of what resources it takes to expand. My model is that the amount of resources you need to grab the most of the universe seems to be small by astronomical means because it's most about the information transmission and sending something that can turn local matter into other structures. Then again, you can have a lot of waste of matter, but that's probably more driven by weird preferences uh, rather than the expansion itself. I'm not sure that the claim that we'll have some people who want um, kind of indefinitely more things and some people who want finite things really addresses the the claim that 
a finite mind might have some maximum like intrinsically and um you know with with provable you know in some provable way might have some maximal value that can be achieved with very strictly finite amounts of resources in which case there isn't anybody else around to trade with that wants more than whatever that upper limit is I think there is also the, the possibility that maybe humans are beings like that, but we're also the kind of beings who might accidentally unleash uh, an AI that doesn't have this. Uh, well, whoops, now we have something that definitely wants to expand for whatever good or bad reason, even though we are kind of totally happy, it turns out, with this finite thing. We're happy drinking tea. Uh, okay, yeah. Adam. Thank you for the talk, uh, Anders. I'll ask the question I asked in the chat, even though it slightly uh, overlaps with David's question. You said in your talk that the things that we would be cooperating with these alien civilizations about would probably not be physical resources. But you could imagine a scenario which that was what you would do. And so imagine that the amount of value that you can create scales super linearly with the amount of physical resources like energy that you can co-locate in one place. You can just it's just the amount that you can get in one place. And you could easily imagine that that scales super linearly, maybe quadratically, maybe even exponentially. You, I think you could make arguments for both of those positions. And if that was true, then we could uh, both benefit, us and a distantly located alien civilization, by just beaming all of our energy as much as possible to some suitable shelling point and trying to get as much energy as possible in that one location. So that would be an example of a sort of physical resource that you would wish to cooperate with these alien civilizations. And that combined, we could get more energy than either of us could have could individually just because of uh, the expansion of the universe and speed of light constraints. So th and we'll not that's mentioned the, the problem of momentum uh, conservation. This is one of the, my biggest annoyances uh, in the writing, uh, the relevant section of my book, when I'm looking at taking remote galaxies and sending them back home. Momentum conservation means that you need to throw something in the opposite direction, so you kind of lose about half. But now yeah, if when you lose less something forward and towards the sorghums, and both uh, of us benefit from that. Bingo. Yeah, so I mean, I, I guess there's two things you could say. One is, yeah, you you lose less than half because of momentum conservation. You'd only lose half in the limit that you were literally each other's light cone when you began. So if it scales sufficiently super linearly, it would still be worth it. And then, yeah, I, I think maybe what you were just saying, you if you have a line of uh, civilizations, then all of the black ones uh, send it to the sort of uh, the white ones before and behind and so you'd have some checkboard uh pattern so that would help you with the, the yeah yeah and, and i do think superlinear scaling matters so uh, this is kind of a, a deep philosophical question what kind of scaling you get from different philosophical well that's not a deep question you said but of course which one is the right one if any matters and I don't, I never see philosophers really go into how much they believe in the different scaling forms of value. They probably should, because I would like to have a table of it. Oh, okay. Well, um, that's a really nice note to end on, I think. Any other questions, comments? We have two more minutes. I'm not sure how much we can pack in there, but given that we just packed this claim into 10 seconds, there may be much more. So, uh, with regard to Robin's question about uh, us encountering other uses, other descendants of uh, the human seed population 
how how similar or different is the coordination problem versus us encountering aliens? Uh, first of all, I, I really much like the perspective that in most ways it's actually the same problem. I think that's correct in most ways. Two two interesting differences, one of which Andrew's already mentioned, uh, which is we can set up coordination frameworks before we all disperse in different directions, such that when we then expand and encounter each other again, uh, we can, for example, by shared cryptographic keys or, or whatever, be able to use uh, credible commitment strategies to coordinate with each other in ways that we couldn't if we couldn't credibly commit. Uh, making a lot of assumptions there, but I, th I think the logic of that works out. Then the next one is the one that uh, starts on a slippery slope between encountering other us's and encountering aliens, which is without explicit prearrangement such that commitments can be technologically credible, the fact that we shared a bunch of ideas and culture before we split apart means that we have much shared informational context to draw on that we know is common knowledge and therefore are more likely to be able to choose shelling points that you know that are successful shelling points in the, in the sense that they're ones that the other side chooses as well and then the way that this shades over into the alien situation is to the degree to which we can come up with shelling points that we might even be able to pre-commit to that we believe are sufficiently universal that they're likely to be chosen by aliens with no common cultural starting point, but just by the nature of reasoning, then very much like uh, there was an investigation by Danny Bobrow and Marvin Minsky about, is there a universal simplest or more obvious, most obvious system of arithmetic. And they, they investigated that by enumerating Turing machines, starting with the simplest Turing machine. And their basic conclusion was, yes, there is a most obvious system of arithmetic. That kind of reasoning might enable us to find shelling points and even develop a technological means of pre-committing to it that we believe are likely to be the same ones chosen by aliens for the same reason. Yeah, cool. Now I need to look at the most obvious arithmetic. Uh, that's obviously what we need to learn. It isn't obvious to you, Anders. Nope, and nope. But then again, I'm a very bad Turing machine. Okay. Well, we have. I know that we're one minute over. So, Anders, if you have to off, um, you know, feel free to do so. I will still take on Robin because I have time to hang out. <laughs> uh, it it occurs to me that I'm sorry. You guys can hear me, right? In the Grabby Aliens framework, there is an obvious. Uh, more intelligent coordination point, which is if there are many more non-Grabby civilizations than Grabby, then when two Grabby meet, they will both have seen some non-Grabbies between them. That is, they both could have gotten information from those, and those can serve as coordination points for the <laughs> Grabby civilizations, and that could be a, a role that non-Grabby civilizations could play, is thinking about you know, you're not sure your civilization will last, but one thing you could do to contribute to the future of the universe is find ways to send out coordination information that both sides would then get and then use when they meet. That's beautiful. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Did this conversation pique your interest? Maybe it even inspired a bit of existential hope about the future in you. Search for Foresight Institute on YouTube or Twitter to stay up to date. Or visit foresight.org to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and join our efforts. We are entirely funded by your donations. So please support us if you like what we do. Thank you so much for listening.